a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome to the show. So good of you to drop by to revel in some wrong think. I came across a saying earlier today, it's so good, I don't want to beat it to death, but I do want to share it with you. And I thought it, it spoke to me. I thought, this is too good. I have to share this with my audience, and since you are my audience, I'm going to share it with you. And that is simply this. The goal of this program is not to awaken all the sheep. The goal of this program, and so many others like it, is to awaken the sleeping lions. I'm guessing you would not be listening if there wasn't something inside you resembling a lion in your heart that uh, looks around and says, hey, (laughs) I am not content to sit back and just let this all happen to me or around me without doing something to try to, to do the right thing, to defend what's worth defending, to uphold what's worth upholding, etc. And so in that spirit, I welcome you to the show and thank you for being part of my growing audience. By the way, I'm going to share a few things with you today that I hope you'll find useful. I'm going to spend a little more time on masks just because this is such a hot button topic. And, you know, I there was a time when I felt a lot more militant about, uh, you know, you know, going after people who, you know, have have a chip on their shoulder about masks, either for or against. I'm getting to the point now where I really want to be an effective ambassador of freedom. Now, putting that into into practice can be tough. If for no other reason, it's it's this mask issue has given some people what they feel is license to be abusive to others. And, and I'm saying this both ways. There are those who feel like everybody should be wearing a mask who get indignant and, and righteously ticked off when they see someone who's not wearing a mask. And they feel like I have a right to go after them and to curse them out and to threaten them or otherwise demean them, treat them as less than human. By the same token, there are those on the non-masking side who feel like, well, it's my job to ridicule all of those sheep wearing their masks. And I'm just going to float this possibility. What if both sides are wrong, at least to the extent that they feel like they have to to, uh, dehumanize or denounce someone who doesn't see things the way that they do? And and if you're looking for a more clear line of delineation between, well, okay, so what's the right thing to do? If you feel like you have to force someone to do something, you really need to recheck your premise and see, is is this really something that I, I have actual moral authority to do in the first place? And if it's questionable or if the answer is, well, no, not really, then don't do it. It's quite simple. I think one of the worst examples of this uh, I heard about last week on my friend Ralph DeLugas' show, Stranger Than Fiction. It's a marvelous podcast, by the way, and I would strongly encourage you, you should check it out. Ralph talks about all kinds of interesting stuff, but one of the things that Ralph is very consistent with is he is a very good defender of freedom, and he's very diplomatic in how he does this. He speaks directly, but there's a, there's a gentleness and, and a kindness in what he does. And he was sharing the example of uh, Robin Openshaw. You may know of her as the green smoothie girl. 
She has quite a following. She's she's a very established um, influencer and media figure, especially in my home state of Utah. Well, she and her husband apparently were flying to Florida for Thanksgiving. And along the way, um, during the flight from Utah to Florida, um, she apparently pulled her mask down to eat or to drink on the plane. I mean, we're talking this is probably, what, a four or five hour flight. Well, the flight attendants were really getting after her. Put your mask back on. Put your mask back on. And they do this to everybody. So it wasn't like she was just being singled out there. However, when she and her husband went to change planes in Atlanta to catch their connection to Florida, she was followed by a couple of Delta employees who bullied her, who badgered her, and insisted, you need to swear to us that you're going to wear your mask correctly. And, and there's video. I posted this actually on Facebook, video of her, you know, walking through the airport, and she keeps telling this guy, would you stop bullying me? I'm wearing my mask. Yeah, well, I need you to swear to me that you're going to wear it correctly, or you will not be allowed on your flight. And, and just would not let it go. Probably 45 minutes, this guy and this lady with him were following her through the airport. Long story short, she and her husband get on the plane to go to Florida, And in the course of, I don't know if she was putting away luggage or something like that, her mask, for a moment, slipped below the tip of her nose. And that was it. And and the little tyrant jumped up and said, that's it, you're off this plane. Or maybe it was one of the flight attendants. Anyway, they kicked her off the plane. And when she and her husband, you know, protested and said, look... This was inadvertent. I'll wear the mask. I'm trying to be careful. But when you're moving around, when you're talking, sometimes the mask is going to come down over your nose. It didn't matter. And in fact, uh, this this is the part that that I find absolutely intolerable, because at some point, this Delta employee turned to this entire plane load of people. It was a big plane, 300 people or so on there and told everybody, gather your stuff Everybody has to get off the plane now. The entire plane must be sanitized because of her. That's how you gin up a mob. And people can say, well, you know, Brian, she should have been more diplomatic or she should have been kinder and gentler. Yeah, I don't know how kind and gentle you need to be when someone is actually trying to gin up a mob against you. And boy, the people were cursing at her and, and, and you know, hurling angry comments and, and just really angry with her. Now, look, I'm just going to ask you for a second to step back from it for a moment. Let's both take a couple of deep breaths. <sighs> okay. Did she really do something that, that, that deserved that steep of an overreaction? I mean, I'm searching my heart. I'm even searching my imagination to try to think what could possibly justify. Well, her mask did slip right below the tip of her nose for a moment. Yes, yeah, so we need to throw everybody off the plane, delay everybody, and sanitize the plane again for that. That just doesn't pass the sniff test. But it does give us a pretty good illustration, number one, of how easy it is to pull a mob together and how easy it is to play on that mob mentality to try to exert social pressure to get people to do something. And that is where my real opposition is. I mean, Delta, look, I, I don't fly all that much anymore, but um, you've pretty much guaranteed I will never set foot in one of your aircraft again. I, I would never subject myself to that kind of treatment. And I understand. I understand the other airlines are like this as well. I just can't believe how tyrannical the recently empowered can become. 
And they may say, well, we have guidelines and we got to make sure and, you know, the masks are protecting everybody. We're going to talk about that here in the next segment. But before we go there, I want to share with you a couple of excerpts from a, a piece from Alan Stevo. This was published on LouRockwell.com earlier today. The title, Face Masks. It's not enough to free yourself. You must be ready to shout down the lynch mob. And this is referring to a a quote that a a reader sent him. Twain wrote, I watched a man shout down a lynch mob today and make it go home. Where is that moral man today? Alan Stevo replies, I am that man. And you? And he asks, are you? He says, show me the lynch mob. Show me the group of people seething with hate for another human, ready to do away with the most righteous parts of themselves and another in the toxic madness of the mob. He says, show me the lynch mob and I'll be a martyr to them as I defend the pursued man standing behind me and tell them to go home to their families. But I probably won't have to be a martyr because bullies and cowards alike seek comfort in the mob. Now, he talks about how Mark Twain writes in Huck Finn about the cowardice of the mob, how it takes more bravery to refuse to be part of the mob than to hide in a lynch mob and how not one in 10,000 men in a lynch mob have that sort of bravery. And Mark Twain calls them cowards, every one. He says, the pitifulest thing out of a mob, out is a mob, rather. That's what an army is, a mob. They don't fight with courage that's born in them, but with a courage that's borrowed from their mass and from their officers. But a mob without any man at the head of us is beneath pitifulness. Alan Stevo says, the slightest hint of a steel-spined righteous man and almost every lynch mob backs down, especially in our current era. The ones that don't, the very few, the ones who Twain calls a half a man at best, well, he says, that's for me and my maker to deal with and goes beyond shouting down a mob. And he asks the question, could you be that person who shouts down a lynch mob? Now, we're not talking about people carrying nooses, not the Jussie Smollett hoax or the Bubba Wallace hoax. Totalitarians don't issue yellow star mandates in 2020. They aren't even anti-Semites in 2020, just as lynch mobs aren't anti-black in 2020. Those are canards and distractions. Alan Stevo says, it takes the overly literal to dwell on such topics as nooses and anti-Semitism, only to miss or pretend to miss the lynch mob that they're working up with such tired canards. We're going to come back to this in just a few moments. And by the way, I don't want to be a spoiler here, but when he says shout down the lynch mob, he's not talking about actually raising your voice. It can be done very calmly and reasonably. That's the best part of all. You don't have to become a mob to oppose the mob. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I will open up the phone lines coming up here in the next segment. But for now, I want to share with you this commentary from Alan Stevo. It will be in the show notes, which you can access at thebrianhydeshow.com. And it's about how it's not enough to free yourself. You have to be ready to shout down the lynch mob. Now, Alan Stevo is specifically talking about face masks. But I think this could be applied to a lot of other areas of our lives. And I think his message is, is on target. He talks about how a righteous man, a brave man, and I'll say or woman, can knock down a mob of 10,000 or more with his courage. 
Now, Alan Stevo asks, how do you recognize the, the lynch mob? And then he says, you identify your boundaries. You communicate your boundaries. You defend your boundaries. You identify your values. You communicate your values. You defend your values. You affirm at this moment, this very moment, to stand up for what's right whenever anyone or anything violates those values in your presence. You do that, and not only will you never have trouble seeing the lynch mob, you'll have trouble being able not to see the lynch mob. From your wonderful two-year-old daughter to your wonderful 80-year-old mother-in-law, rather, you will be able, moment by moment, to see the lynch mob at work. Little, potent pieces of the lynch mob and its cowardice are all around, and eager to be summoned together in pursuit of a target. Now, he says it's not, it's not the noose that's evil. It's not the act of lynching that's evil. It's not even the existence of a mob that's evil. No, none of those. In fact, the deaths of the tyrants like Mussolini and Ceausescu were wonderful uses of a lynch mob. It is the violation of values that makes the lynch mob so evil. And so he says, here's a vow that you should give. Say these words aloud for yourself and for others. I vow to never again back down from a lynch mob. I vow to never again back down from a lynch mob. I vow to never again back down from a lynch mob. He says the brave man has no need to fear a lynch mob ever chasing him. The brave man is willing to stand up to the lynch mob that makes the bad decision of chasing another man into the brave man's presence, a place from which the cowardly mob will certainly be dismissed in shame. So how do you shout down a lynch mob today? Alan Stevo says, I had no stake in the game. This lynch mob was made of people who over the course of their existence have made a libertarian luminary's life a little less free and a little more of a hassle. That luminary needed little reinforcing from a disinterested third party, and that's what he got. The lynch mob was not many people in a field yelling mindlessly. They didn't wear swastikas on their arms or carry nooses. There were no hoods. Those are symbols they purport to abhor, yet they so embrace the greatest horrors associated with those symbols as judged by the daily actions they take. He says, I shouted down three at a time, and shouted down, by the way, is in quotation marks, by using logic and never once raising my voice. And then I shouted down two others individually. After that, I shouted down two more. And when I was all done, I wrapped things up with such a nice bow. There was no shouting, only communicating, educating, and processing. He says, I spoke in words they could understand, and with insistence that made those words stick. It took just a few minutes. Managers and situations and policies and precedents. I told my perspective. I asserted myself, and I made sure this mindless lynch mob behavior would never again affect anyone in that place, especially not that libertarian luminary. What were the details? Well, he says that shouldn't matter. Opposing the face mask, vaccine mandates, medical utilitarianism, deplatforming those who ask inconvenient questions, censorship, the nighttime raid on your neighbor's house, the imprisonment of political heroes, the closing of churches, it's all the same. If you can't stand your if you can't steady your footing rather and take a stand now on simple topics like face masks and managers who arrogantly raise their voices at customers with the most pretentious and outlandish and flimsy lies about their chain's national policy. A policy that you can joyfully help to train or be able to help train the local staff about in the most unforgettable of ways. 
If you can't rise to the occasion in minor moments, you won't be able to do so when you find yourself on a far more slippery slope than we are on today. He says, freedom is yours if you will just reach out and grasp it. Not one in 10,000 of these half a men, these aged, these adult aged children will be able to summon an ounce of courage to stop you. Now he reminds us, this is a war for our minds. We are on a battlefield each day when we arise. The precious moments of sleep, perhaps the only moments when we can relax our minds from the heavy propaganda around us. That is true, provided that we feed it with the right thoughts in the minutes before bed. Affirmations, prayers, positive intentions, gratitude, affirming stories, never television or Stephen King. <laughs> I have to laugh because I'm a big Stephen King fan. He says, your precious mind is constantly at war and the scene of war. Our glorious right to keep and bear arms afforded to us, not by a document, but by our very existence as humans, is useful to keep us off a physical battlefield. The enemy could never win there, not in an open battlefield nor in urban combat. He has shifted his work surreptitiously to the mind where he can win or so he thinks. Alan Stevo says, I know he will lose. Will you join me in shouting down the lynch mob? Will you join me in making sure your values are never again compromised in your presence? Now, there's a whole archive of Alan Stevo's writings available at lourockwell.com. And I want to give a strong recommendation. It's worth your time to check out that archive. He's got some marvelous suggestions on how to gently and diplomatically handle issues with face masks uh, by, by calling ahead to the store, by letting them know you're going to be coming in, by, in essence, asking them to help you solve the problem of how can I do this? Can you let your employees know? And he says most people will actually accommodate you. I think I shared a commentary last week from him where you just have to be willing to communicate. But to me, this is so much better approach. This is a, this is a much more productive way to address the mask issue than simply going in and puffing up and getting loud and, and, and outraged. I mean, I, I'm ashamed when I see some of the behavior, not just of the, the people who are resisting the masks, but some of the, the, ma the pro-mask shamers, the cursing and the threats of violence and so forth. It's just, it's, it's tribalism on a whole different level. And by the way, I have, a, I have an article here that I would hope you would take a look to as well. Um, this is about face masks and in particular, how the face masks are not doing the job. This is from a writer by the name of Jordan Schachtel. Everyone is already wearing a mask. They just don't work. Now, look, I'm not trying to tell you, therefore, you should not wear one. I just want you to understand that Americans have exceeded the universal masking benchmarks, but it hasn't slowed or stopped the spread of COVID-19. So let's stop pretending that this is the way that we save lives. Jordan, uh, Jordan Schachtel says, one of the most common pro-mask arguments I've heard over the course of the past year, both from public health experts and your average citizen, sounds familiar to the following statement. If only everyone would wear a mask, we would be able to crush the virus and end the pandemic. He says this line of reasoning is as frequently espoused by lockdown governors and public health experts. You see, the problem isn't them. It's you, the citizen, we're told. Wear a mask, peasant. You're the problem. You're the reason why the pandemic is still a problem in this country. Deaths are up. 
Well, why aren't you wearing a mask? Cases up? Wear a mask. Hospitals crowded? The problem is not enough people are wearing masks. And by the way, he backs this up with actual tweets and news stories claiming just this. But he says the idea that not enough Americans are wearing masks is detached from reality. And then he backs it up with the data to prove it. We're going to come back to this in just a few moments. And, and again, this is not to tell you that you shouldn't wear a mask. If it makes you feel safer, by all means, you should wear one. But if you're thinking that you now have license to go harangue other people to wear one, wait till you hear what the data has to say, and maybe you should think twice before insisting that this is the panacea that we've been told it is. It's not. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. So I'm sharing with you this article. This is from Jordan Schachtel. I've got a link to it in the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. Everyone is already wearing a mask. And this is the data that, that shows compliance is way up there. I've been saying this for weeks, but this guy actually went to the trouble of crunching the numbers and showing you uh, with the help of the Delphi Group at Carnegie Mellon University. They put together a very informative, consistently updated mask compliance tracker. And here's what it shows. It shows that the overwhelming majority of Americans across the nation are wearing masks. And in virtually every major population center in the U.S., especially in, high, in areas where COVID-19 cases are rising, mask compliance levels are off the charts high. In fact, with most major metro areas, they're registering well over 90% compliance. Now, I don't know if you remember, but early on in the pandemic, when the new science told us that masks could stop the virus in its tracks... This is after the science of the early of early 2020 espoused by the likes of Fauci and many others rightly pointed to the reality that masks are useless outside of a controlled setting. The CDC and other public health agencies claimed that we could essentially eliminate transmission if a large percentage of the population adopted universal masking. So when lockdowns failed to stop the spread, masking up at over 80 percent was hyped as a way to do more to reduce COVID-19 spread than a strict lockdown. Masking, I'm sorry, it says universal masking at 80% adoption flattens the curve significantly more than maintaining a strict lockdown. That was a much-hyped, highly publicized study, which was treated by many in the scientific community as gospel. D. Kai, a research scholar at Berkeley who helped develop the COVID universal masking model proclaimed, we will not only be able to flatten the curve, we will be able to significantly reduce the spread of the virus and return to life as normal sooner rather than later. Well, with the help of the CMU mask compliance tracker, Jordan Schachtel says, let's take a look at the current COVID-19 hotspots in the United States, in the United States rather, and the level of mask compliance within those areas. San Francisco metro area, 97% mask compliance. Same with New York City metro area. D.C., same, 97%. Okay, well, let's go somewhere that's a little more freedom-minded. How about Dallas, Fort Worth, and Arlington? 94% mask 
mask compliance. Philadelphia area, 96%. Chicago, 95%. Miami, Fort Lauderdale, 96%. Seattle, 96%. Now, the data demonstrates very clearly that Americans have overwhelmingly exceeded the masking compliance percentages needed to supposedly flatten the curve and reduce the transmission of the virus. The problem, of course, is that the models have not matched reality. Yes, Americans are wearing masks, but the hypothesis behind universal masking has not worked to stop the spread of COVID-19. Americans have adopted the recommendations of public health experts, but the public health experts have failed to follow the science, which now shows that masks are useless when it comes to stopping the spread of COVID-19. Now we're left with an overwhelming majority of Americans wearing masks for no science-based reason whatsoever. You really need to see the charts. You need to see this with your own eyes. Yes, I know my dulcet tones could proclaim it to you, but that's not the same thing as actually looking at this for yourself. If you still feel safer wearing a mask, by all means, you should wear one. But can we at least stop pretending that it's all that? That is really the thing that's protecting us and, and, and making a difference. I mean, I, I'm, if you wear a mask, I'm really not trying to call you out on this. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty, but it's becoming very clear that the mask is the outward badge of compliance. And unfortunately, we have allowed ourselves to become trained as a mob, like Alan Stevo would explain, to when we see someone who is not in compliance... We're trained to see that as a threat. This goes to a conversation I had over the weekend on social media. Uh, someone had posted something about, oh, isn't that interesting? You know, that uh, there's a, vi there's a uh, vaccine that's going to be made available and made mandatory for a disease that is so dangerous that you have to go get tested to find out if you even have it. And my comment was simply, hey, well, if, you know, if, if something is so good that you have to make it mandatory, maybe it wasn't such a great idea to begin with. Holy cow. That set off some of the people who were just convinced that, Brian, you just want people to die. And, you know, that people need to be following these mandates and we need to be forcing people to do it because they won't do it if we don't. I just believe that people, given the right information, given factual information, will make the right choices enough of the time to make all the difference that needs to be made. I don't know where this attitude comes from. No, no, no. Only I know what, to, what needs to be done, and you, the rest of you, are so stupid you can't figure it out for yourself. I mean, there's plenty of evidence to look to in countries that didn't enact strict lockdown procedures or strict mask mandates who nonetheless still weathered the storm as good or even better than many of the nations that did implement those things. Let people choose. I know it's, it's, there's a pandemic and people think therefore all the rules are off, but they aren't. I mean, at what point, at what point would there be an emergency where you would have to admit, okay, my self-ownership, my responsibility for myself has now been entirely handed off to a third party. Because I promise you that there are third parties who would love to have that kind of power and control. And if all they have to do is invoke some kind of an emergency, whether it's a public health emergency or some other kind of emergency, that's exactly what they're going to do. Why? Because it works in their favor. 
the question really comes down to not to, well, do they have authority to do this? There, are, there is some civic authority, but there's a larger question of moral authority. And when you start looking at uh, where do I get the moral authority to compel another human being to do what I want him to do, you're going to find that the, the instances in which that is actually a good or justifiable act are extremely limited and should be. We have two options of how we deal with other people, how we interact with other people. We can either persuade them or we can force them. If force is your first resort, I'm sorry, but you're doing something wrong. Either your ideas suck and they're so bad that people are not going to willingly embrace them. Therefore, they have to be implemented at bayonet point. Or maybe you're just grasping for power where you don't really need to have it. At any rate, it's not like there hasn't been plenty of, uh, uh, plenty of things said or, or thought about on this issue. Philosophers have studied it for many uh, millennia, for that matter. But it's a very helpful question to ask. Where do I derive the moral authority to tell you what to do? Now, if I'm a parent, guess what? I am going to invoke that moral authority. But it's not moral authority given to me by the state. It's moral authority that actually God, I believe, will hold me accountable for if I don't exercise it wisely. Speaking of which, I want to I suggest something to you. This is another article I have linked in the show notes today. John Houting, Look to the Altar, Not the Throne. With everything in commotion around us, I know that uh, most of us are uh, trying to think about what can I count on? What is constant? What isn't changing everywhere? And in the backdrop, against the backdrop, rather, of the Supreme Court granting injunctive relief to houses of worship previously closed under New York Governor Andrew Cuomo's restrictions on public gatherings. This is a question that should be on a lot more people's minds. Where do we look for that stability? Where do we look for a sure foundation. Now, Justice Neil Gorish chided the governor for his color-coded executive edicts that reopen liquor stores and bike shops, but shutter churches, synagogues, and mosques. Now, in this case, John Houting says it's a tremendous step toward the restoration of order in America. Almost all Americans have lived through a chaotic year. The community, the community, the encouragement, and sacred liturgy offered by local churches are havens of order in troubled times. So Cuomo's efforts to shutter these havens were unjustified and imprudent. The New York Times reported the virus has infiltrated Sunday services, church meetings, and youth, youth camps. This was back in a July piece that was quoted extensively on news channels. Yet reports of mass outbreaks originating in churches are pretty underwhelming in the grand scheme. Quote, more than 650 coronavirus cases have been linked to nearly 40 churches and religious events across the U.S. since the beginning of the pandemic, with many of them erupting over last month as Americans resumed their pre-pandemic activities, according to a New York Times database. Now, when you consider there are approximately 384,000 congregations and roughly 231.7 million Christians across the country, perhaps the 0. 0.00 Zero one percent of churches with mass outbreaks between February and July could take special precautions, maybe on a church-by-church -church basis. But do you see, it's not nearly the threat that it was made out to be. We'll come back to this in just a few moments. Stay with us.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show, 801-331-8113, if you'd like to join the conversation. I want to go back to this article here again from John Houting. Look to the altar, not the throne. And I think this is good advice. And, and look, this, this may sound a little conspiratorial, but I think historically he's got some pretty solid ground to stand on here. He says, constitutionally, the burden for closing churches should be much higher than for secular places of public accommodation, like liquor stores. The American founders enshrined a right to the free exercise of religion in the First Amendment to the Constitution. A right to buy liquor is not similarly enshrined. In fact, many of the founding stock came to America precisely because their churches were being closed by despots back in England. Now, here's a thought worth considering. When despots want to break a people, they target their religion. If you destroy the cult, you destroy the culture. Without a common culture, a people cannot remain distinct. Civilization has never existed without a strong sense of the supernatural. Joseph de Maistre wrote, wherever an altar is found, their civilization exists. Pretty powerful article. And the fact that he quotes uh, uh, Joe, uh, Joseph Sobran in there just as extra points to me because Sobran was one of my favorite thinkers. It's hard to believe he's been gone for 10 years now, but uh, you'll find a link to this article in the show notes for today. Again, that's the Brian Hyde Show for Monday, December 7th. Now, speaking of the influence of religion, you cannot look at Western civilization without feeling a little debt of gratitude toward the influence of, of religion. And it's, this is not all good news, mind you. There were some times when religion was the source of tyranny. But Paul Rosenberg has a terrific article here called Reclaiming Our Western Civilization. And since right now it's very fashionable to want to throw Western civilization under the bus, or at least on the trash heap, there are a couple of things you should consider about what Western civilization brought he says the dismantling of Western civilization ran from the middle of the Enlightenment to about 1967. Since then, it has been aggressively uprooted and burnt. Western civilization still continues in the hearts and minds of many Westerners, and some local institutions retain their souls, but he says the central institutions are lost. The large and centralized entities of the modern West oppose Western civilization. Now, that said and accepted, the darkness emanating from the American and European power centers has made one thing very clear. They are not Western civilization. They are, in fact, wildly separated from it. And that, in its way, is a blessing because it allows us to clarify what Western civilization really was. And what it was was a beautiful thing. To establish this point, he says, please remember that Christian Europe inherited some 20 million slaves from Rome. And by about 900 A.D., slavery had been eradicated from the continent. Never before in all of human history had slavery been eradicated on that scale. Western civilization has been a massive blessing to the world. The centralized powers are making it clear that they have no part in it just makes it easier for us to see. He says, I'm going to borrow from production versus plunder to begin describing the rich inheritance the institutions have stolen from us. 
Western civilization, Carol Quigley said, might be summed up in the belief that truth unfolds through time in a communal process. Now, this quote expresses a great core of Western civilization, if not the core. There are many facets to the formula. Truth is revealed by a communal, meaning a cooperative process. And while this statement may be new to most of us, its effects are not. Everyone in the West faces them every day, so much so that we never really consider them. When we use phrases like, we know that, or we have no information on, as we so often do, we are presuming that truth is built that all of us may contribute to this building of knowledge and that we will certainly have more in the future than we have now. This makes Western civilization optimistic, but more than that, it also makes authoritarian rule incompatible with our beliefs. If the final truth is to be revealed, is yet to be revealed rather, who can say that he or she has full knowledge and should be given full powers? It also makes the West open to new ideas from any source. Closely related to this ideal is the assumption that we are a community of interests. We don't all have the same dreams and desires. We don't all have to fit into the same old mold. Even so, we all may contribute to the accumulation of truth, and so long as we do not intrude upon others, we feel free, we should be free to pursue our narrow personal interests. This builds civilization on a decentralized model which is exceptionally resilient and open to improvement. Now, this is the end of the quote that, uh, that Paul Rosenberg was sharing from Production versus Plunder. He says, on top of that, Western civilization was built on Judeo-Christian principles. The one that slew slavery was the belief that all men were brothers, or as we tend to describe the concept these days, the dignity of man. Some of them, some of the others rather, borrowed from discourses on Judaism, Jesus, and Christianity were these. Now remember, these are some of the basic tenets of Western civilization. We carry free will. We are able to improve. Power and rulership are antithetic to the creator and antithetic to human progress. I like this one. Justice stands above the ruler. Our relationship with the Creator is fundamentally personal, not collective. The Creator, the ultimate, is qualitatively good. We are obliged to our offspring, not them, to us. An expectation of production rather than plunder. Geography has no bearing on our relationship with ultimates, like truth or justice. Humanity is in a long-term familial relationship with the Creator. Co-dominance, which means the absence of dominance in an interpersonal relationship. We can both be strong and friendly at the same time. And finally, love for the other. Those are the kind of assumptions that built a humane and productive society. And they still would work today if we would just put them to use. And Paul Rosenberg says, as a result, what Western civilization focused on was the production of good men and women. He says, please understand that every invention, every scrap of utility and progress found its beginnings in some man or woman functioning well and creating a new and better way of doing things. How important is it then to produce better humans? And so he says, this is a, t this is a moment for us to reach back and wrap our hands around the great and largely forgotten Western civilization. He says, it's time for us to repair it, polish it, and put it back into use. Now, I know this sounds pretty lofty, 
And if you're looking at me with a, with kind of a glazed look going, really, Hyde? Defending Western civilization. Let me see if I can explain why this resonates so strongly with me. Why it resonates strongly enough that I want to share it with you. I know I can't be the only person right now who is looking around me, and I mean sincerely doing some soul searching. As, as I assess the situation around us, I see some pretty amazing stuff ahead of us. And by amazing, I also mean troubling and disturbing and, and in some cases downright scary stuff approaching. When the uh, Electoral College goes to certify the vote, which I believe it's going to do about a week from now, I think things could get very chaotic. I mean, come on, we already have Proud Boys and Antifa fighting it out in the streets. Um, Physically, you know, they're just knuckle and tooth for the moment. But a lot more guns are showing up to these protests. I don't think we're far away from hitting a tipping point where some really crazy stuff could kick off. There's financial uncertainty. We've got the prospect of this pandemic continuing. And, of course, that attempt to consolidate and lock down control over the people at all these different levels of government. The deck is feeling pretty stacked against us right now. And I know a lot of people are saying, what can we do? What can we do? I've thought about this. I've contemplated it, I, I have prayed about it, and I continue to do so, because I'm still not content that I've, I've got the absolute answer here. But I think Paul Rosenberg is on the right path here. If there was ever a time to focus on being a person of solid character, and I'm leaving it to you to define what that means, I think this is that time. And I think rather than going out there and trying to build some big top-down movement that's going to set everything right in one fell swoop, and by gosh, we can just get enough people in the right offices, nope. I think the fix this time is going to have to come from people of extraordinary character living up to that character no matter how crazy things get. Do you understand what I'm saying? Being a source of light and truth at a time when people around you are sincerely concerned that they can't find anything sturdy to hang their hat on so to speak that's how you're going to have the greatest impact at least for the time being now i'm open to improvement on this and i'm still looking for answers but that's something you and i have absolute control over we can control what we are in the process of becoming so that's what i'm going to be working on if you can come up with a better idea please feel free to share it with me This is The Brian Hyde Show.